0: O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I was very thankful to be able to hand you over to Father Canary for a little while. He was very excited to uh, teach the Lord's Prayer section, uh, and he got, I think, as I was counting it, uh, not many. He got, we got about ten questions in, which is pretty good, I'd say. Um, and so I've, uh, I've been away teaching. Uh, the uh, senior high class, which I do from time to time, and then also I was away at the Institute for the Renewal of Christian Catechesis in San Francisco last week, so it's very good to be back with you and doing the very thing I love, which is catechesis. Um, so just really uh, quickly, um, I'll, I'll kind of give you my, my, t- my initial take on the Lord's Prayer. Um, the Lord's Prayer is not, you'll know, an individualistic prayer, is it? It's the prayer of Christ's body, the church, um, who has been, which has been adopted into the same relationship which the son enjoys with the father, which is why it is a prayer that's prayed with the Lord Jesus, our father, right? It's not uh, Jesus' father who art in heaven. No, it's our father. Um, it's also not my father who art in heaven. It's not, it's not the prayer that Jesus prays personally or individually. He prays it with his church, um, we, we talked a little bit about this in the first section on the Creed, but what, what does Jesus do at the right hand of the Father? He intercedes, right? And so uh, his, his, uh, his work before the Father is prayer constantly. Um, and so shall ours be on the, uh, with him, right? To be constantly in intercession and prayer before the Father. And so, he says, our Father. He teaches them to pray the way that he prays, the way that he prays um, with the relationship with the Father that he has. Um, And so, we call God Father, just as he does. Um, So, let's start on question 165. Do you all have the new catechism text? This is the one you want. This is the official new catechism. You can get it on the back table if you want, uh, but they're 20 bucks a piece, and if you can't pay 20 bucks, then just grab one and use it, and that will be your payment. <laughs> so, uh, let's, let's jump in. Um, we'll, we'll actually review question 165. Why do we call God Father? We call God Father because Jesus teaches his disciples that we are God's children and should call God our Father. And um, the Lord's Prayer is given in Scripture in two places, in both in the Gospel of Luke and also in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, it happens in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6. Um, and it's not in the form of a question, it's in the form of an exhortation. When you pray, pray like this, right? Um, in the Gospel of Luke, it's a response to uh, the disciples asking, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Um, so, all of that is to say that uh, this, this prayer uh, exists within the Gospels. Um, it's given by Jesus himself, um, and, and so uh, we jump in this way. We call God Father because Jesus teaches his disciples that we are God's children and should call God our Father. The status of a Christian is one who's been adopted as a child of God. Um, you know, and, and uh, if, if some of you are, maybe some of you are adopted. Is anyone adopted in here? anyone? No? Okay. There's usually somebody. Uh, but, you know, you, you know if, if I have my kids and I have my adopted kids, I don't say, I want you to meet my son, so-and-so, and then I want you to meet my adopted daughter, so-and-so, right? It's the stuff of hilarious movies, like there's a scene in Royal Tenenbaums where, the, where one of the main characters does this, and he's, it's all just to show what a jerk he is, basically, <laughs> because you just don't do that. Why? Because adoption truly makes someone a child, um, they're legally your child. The only thing that didn't happen was live birth and matching genes, uh, but that's it. In every other way, uh, you're a child, and Jesus um, refers to um, uh, 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 the believer as God's child, um, and so does uh, Paul throughout his correspondences. Who are God's children? All who come to God through faith and baptism in Christ are adopted as children of God the Father. Um You'll note there's this constant use of these terms, faith and baptism, and the reason for that is that um, baptism and faith go together. Um, we can even speak about this with regard to infants. Do infants have faith? You might ask me this question. My answer is, yes, they have quite a bit. <laughs> because if you've, if you've ever seen a baby, you hold this baby in your hands, right? Do you ask people to carry you around, Anyone? Why wouldn't you? Because you, you just say, you're going to drop me. I know you're going to drop me. It's not going to work. But a baby is always relying upon a father for this. And so, then, in this way, uh, babies show forth this, this faith, this, this lively faith. And you might say, well, what kind of faith is that? It doesn't, it doesn't touch on the intellect. Well, faith isn't a word for the intellect. <laughs> faith is actually a word for what happens before the intellect starts to be formed. Um, you'll remember that wonderful phrase uh, from St. Anselm who says, faith does what? Mm -hmm. Any honors college vibes? Mm -hmm. Faith seeks understanding. Live Oak people too. (laughs) You're very happy with this. This is very good. The reason is that um, we don't actually uh, come to God first intellectually. Um, We come to God first through through faith. Um, And we actually, what, what happens is we put our mind by a kind of um, surrender into God's hands that he may teach us. Um, that's actually what happens in this process of catechesis, is you say, I'm going to put my mind in God's hands and see what he does with it, and it's an amazing thing that happens. Um, but babies are the same way. Baptism is also a kind of surrender, right? You you enter into this uh, surrender to God, um, and if you're baptized as an adult or as a young person, this is what you do, and you do it cognizant that that's what's happening, um, and uh, and this is given to you. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. Um, So, all who come to God in this way. Now, it's also certainly possible that that people can come to God in faith and are made children of God in some other way than baptism. Whatever God can do through a sacrament, He can do any way He wants because He's God, right? We got that clear? Okay, God can do whatever He wants. Uh, And and, um, this is to say that uh, I've known many people through the years who've come to a lively faith prior to their baptism, of course that's going to happen. Of course that's a thing. Are they children of God? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but, but surely, certainly, we wouldn't say that yet. Um, but this is simply to say that that these these are God's children. Um, well, how is this described in the New Testament? As as rebirth. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? What does he say? You must be born again. Um, and this is not just uh, in, in America that often translates to, I got born again, right? Um, and that's a good thing, right? But it's not what the scriptures are speaking about, because when Jesus continues on this conversation, he says he was born of water and the Spirit. He refers to this dual birth of water and the Spirit. Um, what we speak of in the sacrament of baptism is this rebirth, which is being joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, and uh, and that means that we're reborn um, as as new people. Go ahead. Yes? Yep. We're not entirely sure that he, that he did. We read that his disciples were baptizing, um, but uh, we're not entirely sure that Jesus baptized anybody. Um, now, did he? I don't know, maybe. It's, it doesn't really matter, because the sacrament of baptism was actually not given to the church prior to the day of Pentecost, um, in which all those 3,000 people are baptized, Right. Um, and it seems that there, throughout the Acts of the Apostles, there are some people who receive the Holy Spirit before they're baptized, and there are others who uh, are baptized, and then they don't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come and pray for them. Uh, and so, there's varieties of this, but what we see by the end of the New Testament period is that, is that those have come together, right? Um, and this is to say, first, I want to make this clear, can you receive the Holy Spirit without being baptized? Yes. Why? Because God can do whatever He wants, right? Again, 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 this is important. Um, but do you receive the Holy Spirit when you're baptized? Yes, right. So we make that very clear, um, and that is that is the teaching of the Scriptures. Um, it's the teaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. What does he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is this is constant throughout the New Testament text. Why does Jesus teach us to pray, Our Father? Jesus teaches us always to understand ourselves, not only as individuals, but as members of God's family of believers, and to pray accordingly. We're to, this is really important, we're to understand ourselves as what? Yeah, not just individuals, but as members of God's family of believers. This is so important. I'm going to go on and on at length about this, so, you know, I'm going to preach on this today. I'm going to say a little bit about it in the announcements, but nothing you do is purely individual. I wish everybody in the world would just get this simple point. You can't do anything as an individual. It's impossible. You're always doing something as a member of a body, okay? Um, Whether the body of humanity or uh, whatever it might be, in in this case, as a member of the church. Um, When you pray, you pray as a member of the church. Um, When you repent, you repent as a member of the church, um, when you believe, you, you believe as a member of the church. When you give to the poor, you give to the, to the poor as a member of the church. When you pray, you pray as I've already said it. When you fast, you fast as a member of the church. Okay. There's no such thing as individual action. There's no such thing as me and Jesus' religion in the church. It just doesn't exist. Um, there's no such thing as own Lone Ranger Christianity. It doesn't exist. And Jesus teaches this by saying, our Father. Okay. Um, people have often asked me when they start to pray the daily office out of the prayer book. Which I encourage you to do, and Lent's a good time to get started. You know, all the prayers are in the third person. How do 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 I pray this? Should I just change it to I and me? And my my answer is always no, don't do that. Like, just pray it the way it's written in the prayer book. Why? Because you're praying as a member of a body. You're also, and this is a really wonderful thing that, that people often forget. You're praying for those and on behalf of those who can't pray. I mean, at this very moment, there are people out there who can't pray for, for a variety of reasons. Maybe there are Christians who are in comas. Maybe there are Christians who are hooked up to ventilators. Maybe there are Christians who are um, who are in such distress that they can't even think to pray. Or Christians who are completely depressed that they can't pray. Um Maybe there are Christians at this very moment who are, who are involved in very exerting work. Um, we pray for them as well. Um, we pray on their behalf. This is something I was talking about in a sermon a couple weeks ago. But it's that, you know, it's that thing that happens on the, at the Super Bowl, right? Somebody at the Super Bowl, not you, but someone else was saying, was saying about the Kansas City Chiefs, we won, we won, right? Did they ever throw a football? Did they run run down the field? Did they score a touchdown? There were were people on that team who never went on the field. And yet they're going to get a Super Bowl ring. Why? Because everything in in human life is vicarious. We always act on behalf of a whole. Always. Uh, It's inescapable. Um, And in this time of individualism and rampant individuality, we need to remember that, right? That, uh, as John Donne says, no man is an island. (laughs) You can't live in this way. It doesn't work. Um, Not only that, but talk about a horribly depressing way to live, right? Everything in your life depends on you, your reality, your decisions, your understandings, your uh, thoughts about how things are. Um, And there's actually nothing more terrifying than someone who lives by their own wits, um, that's that's a, just a, a generally terrifying idea that someone would live just basically by the, by the things that they have personally come to know. Um, so we, we have this wonderful status as Christians as a part of a body. How is God like earthly fathers? Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, God loves us in our weakness, provides for our needs, teaches us in our ignorance, and corrects us when we go astray. This sentence, this whole sentence is qualified. Like all loving and sincere earthly fathers, now you may be you may be look at your life and say, "Well, I didn't have a loving and sincere father." And, well, this is covered for you. Okay, so it's it's not saying all fathers. All fathers don't do this. Um, you know, it's it's fair to say that as your life goes on and as you mature and as you get older, um, your your relationship with your father becomes um, complicated, to say the least. Um, sometimes better, sometimes worse. But it's simply to say that. Um, like the ideal of a loving father, like all loving and sincerely fathers, God's, God loves us in our weakness, right? So think about this. I don't know if you ever know this, noticed this happen, but I, I have as a father noticed that there will be times when my kid is screaming his head off or her head off, usually more likely, uh, <laughs> because I have more girls, not because, anyway. Um, she's sitting there screaming her head off. And, and I, I stand over here, I say, come here, come here, come here. And what, is, what does the little kid do? Ah! When is that cycle broken? When I go to her. Um, I love the, love the child in their weakness. I don't say, you must come to me, right? Um, I go to them. Uh, provides for our needs like a loving father does. Um, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give to those who ask? Um, Wonderful news, yes? I mean, every Christmas, every parent in America is sitting there thinking, how am I going to meet my child's needs this Christmas? Um, A good Father teaches us in our ignorance um, you probably remember a conversation you had with your parents of any kind, you know, uh, saying something that was patently untrue and they corrected you, yes? Um, and, and it's good to have correction. We need correction. We also need correction when we go astray. Um, and loving fathers do this. And God is just like this. Um, God does not leave us in our weakness to cry and go, I'm going to die. What does he do? From the Very earliest. Think about, think about. Think about it. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are there in the garden. They're hiding because they know it's time for their walk and they don't want to go on it. They're thinking they can hide out indefinitely, which is ridiculous. And what does God do? He shows up for his walk. And what does He say? Where are you? Does He know? Why does He ask? For their benefit. He asks them because he wants he wants them to tell him where they are, uh, that he may come to them, and he finds them. And remember what he does they've they've sewed fig leaves together or whatever it is and just large leaves they've sewed them together, and, and, and uh, it's not good enough for God. What does he do? He gives them animal skins. Um, he there are consequences for the fall. Um, But but here's the wonderful thing in the story of redemption. Our our state as redeemed people in Christ is greater than what Adam and Eve experienced prior to the fall. Ah, why? Because though they had though they had walked with God, had they seen His glory? Though they had been with God in the garden, had they had they been with Him in fall? And so one of the wonderful things that I love uh, that comes up in theology is this idea that that the fault is actually a happy fault. Um, because it happens, and uh, and God uses it for good, which is what He does. Um, earthly fathers can do this, right? It's it's we have to find it in our capacity to do this, right? We have to turn unhappy things into happy things. It's very often very hard to do. It's actually the challenge that I put out to fathers: is you got to start to hone this skill of turning an unhappy thing into a happy thing, uh, or you're going to hate life as a father because. You know, you'll be driving up through Oklahoma and uh, somewhere in uh, Muskogee, I don't have any, you know, inside information on this, your van will break down and you'll be miserable and you'll be unhappy and you'll be thinking, why did I go on this miserable vacation? This is supposed to be a time of rest and it's not restful at all and I hate my van and this, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 And then you kind of have to think, oh, oh, wait, okay, all right let's get creative, <laughs> let's solve this, Like, let's turn this unhappy thing into a happy thing, and we'll have a great time at the hotel pool, and we'll get up in the morning, and we'll get breakfast, and we'll go do this, and we'll go do that, and it'll be great. Um, and you have to start to do that. And it's really hard, I know it, it's really hard. But, but this is what a loving father does. They take the unhappy thing, and they make it happy. Um, they, you can even look, if you've gone astray in your life, if you've sinned deeply, can you look back and say, Yeah, God never used that. (laughs) No, you should be able to say, um, yes, God used that deep ways, amazing ways for me. How is God unlike earthly fathers? Unlike our natural fathers, our heavenly father loves us perfectly, is almighty in his care, makes no errors in judgment, and disciplines us only for our good. Let's break this down a little bit. Loves us perfectly Um, If this was in the New Testament, it would say, loves us in a grown-up way and not in the childish way. Um, Loves us with the end in mind. What's the perfect end for us? To enjoy the presence of God forever, to to be with Him in His glory. Um, He loves us perfectly. Um, Is almighty in His care. In other words, can do what? Anything. Um, one of the issues with uh, contemporary Christian thought in, in the kind of pop religion thought is this idea of God as sort of existing way beyond the universe and never really getting involved in the muck of human life. You know, God's just sort of out there and he does God stuff, right? It's a God thing, right? Never quite, you know, and I don't mean to make fun of that, but but it's basically like it's way out there. God is whatever he is. He's way out there. It doesn't have anything to do with my daily life at all because it's uninteresting. What do we Christians teach? Yes, by the word of his power, right? Um, That is to say, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a physicist in the room, so I have to be very careful, but scientists do not know what holds matter together. Physicists have no idea what holds matter together at the most basic level. What holds an atom together? We can say it has something to do with mass and gravity and all that, but we still don't know, right? We don't know what holds the universe together. Christians hold that God holds it all together by the word of his power. He intends it to stay together. And he also intends, he intends it to experience his good, his goodness. Um, God makes no errors in judgment. Um, so we're often tempted to say, "Why?" It's a good question to ask, by the way. It's not a bad question. Ask why. But also trust. Right? This is the this is the Christian way of things. You think about Job. You know, he he he's he experiences this misery, um, but in all of it, he doesn't sin. Can you imagine that? Family's taken away from you twice, everything you have taken away from you twice. Um, they say that in the initial version of Job, there wasn't that very last chapter where everything gets restored to him, that in the very earliest versions, he just was, everything was taken, and that was it. End of story. And you have to sit with that. Now, someone was unhappy with it, and they probably fixed it, right? But, but it's just to say that, now, I don't know what to say about that, but it's just to say that there's, there's this There's this struggle. Um, and disciplines us only for our good. You can always think, and, and everybody can think back on the time when you were disciplined harshly or undeservedly or, uh, or in a way that, you, that was not good for you. Um, I can certainly look back on that, I can say. And, of course, the hard part is they don't remember that, right? But it still happened. Um, God exercises discipline only for our good as a loving Father. Um, Many people, you know, the letter to the Hebrews speaks of this, experience discipline from God in a way that is unpleasant at the time, yes? Um, All discipline is unpleasant at the time it happens. (laughs) It's always like, oh, why? But what does it do to us? It brings about perfection. So you might be sitting there and saying, you know, why is life like this right now? I remember in college asking, why won't this particular young woman who will remain nameless... Why won't she have anything to do with me? Well, looking back 20 years later, I can say, oh, I know why, right? That, that wouldn't have worked. Right? Like, <laughs> and, and I can just say, great, you know, I'm so glad that didn't happen. But it, it would have happened if, if I'd been able to have it happen. I would have tried to make it happen. It wouldn't have been good. But there it was. What is heaven? Heaven is the realm of God's presence, power, and glory, which exists invisibly alongside this visible realm, and from which God hears the prayers of his children. If you grow up like I did, you grew up in a kind of three-tiered universe. You've got, you got hell down below, right? You got us here walking around on the earth, and then somewhere up past the clouds, you've got heaven. And that's a very comforting thought because you think, well, you know, uh, someday I'll fly away, oh glory! I'll fly away, and it's just—and it's just this like lovely idea, and and then and you think, and I know that at the center of the earth is a burning fiery furnace uh, to which all my enemies will go, and isn't that a great comforting thought as well? But the world which we're exposed to in the New Testament and in Scripture as a whole um, is certainly something of that in a way, uh, but we have a problem with that today, don't we? It's actually a good problem to have because it gets us more in the New Testament mindset. It's that wonderful space mission that took Apollo astronauts way out past the Earth's orbit, and what did they do? You've seen this picture in your uh, in your science books, right? Sometimes it's it's put right on the front of the science book, right? It's this picture of the Earth. And listen, everything changed for humanity when they saw that. We knew what it might look like from the outside, looking in, but everything changed at that moment. Because no, no longer could you hold that. It was impossible. And for what? For some Christians, this was a crisis for their faith because they said, we can't believe this anymore. We can't believe what we used to. And I think what, what's really powerful today is that many people are saying, you never should have in the first place. Um, we live in a sacramental universe, as many like Hans Borsmer are starting to say strongly. We live in a world that has both visible and invisible, where the division between visible and invisible is as thin as a curtain, if not thinner. Um, what we see in Scripture is things like angels ripping open the curtain between heaven and earth, and what do they do? It's like, I Love the, the angel appearing to, um, to Zechariah in the temple. And the best way to put it is he just rips the curtain open and sticks his head in and says, you know, do not fear, of course. <laughs> it's always what they say, right? But, but it's, it's, it's to say that we live in a world that has these kinds of, this, these two sides, right? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things, what? Visible and invisible, uh, seen and unseen. Um, those are four separate categories, by the way. Um, it's the realm of God's presence, power, and glory, which exists alongside um, so, this is what we enter into in, in places like this church. You may have noticed this, actually, through the years, that uh, it's, it's a very interesting and dynamic thing, but what do you see of that stained glass window from the outside? It looks dingy and dirty, and it, and it is. It looks, like, uh, it looks like nothing. Stained glass is meant to go one way, Right? It's why it always drives me crazy when people put lights up outside their stained glass windows or inside the stained glass windows so that everybody can see what's going on inside. Because, because the idea is that you enter into a space in which, um, in which you can see more clearly, right? Um, you enter into this holy space that's showing you the reality behind everything, right? That's why I love, I love this painted image behind, at the altar, which is to say, Jesus showing, right? Showing. That what they can't see, right? Do you ever notice all the all the images in there? They're 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 very skillfully done. Um, each woman gathered around the tomb shows a different aspect of thinking about the resurrection. Do you ever notice this? One is hopeful; she's looking up like this. Um, another is pondering. Do you see? She's looking at it. She's thinking about it. Um, all of them show forth these different ways of seeing things. Um, what we see both through the incarnation and also through Christ's resurrection, is that um, earthly bonds cannot hold back uh, the power and and glory of God. Um, So we see this wonderful uh, image of the resurrection. Um, And and God hears from this place um, the prayers of his children. And we should not think about him being millions of miles away, up in a cloud somewhere, but right here. Um, It's good news. How does your Father in heaven help you here on earth? Because God is in all places and knows all things, He hears and answers my prayers, directs my paths, and strengthens me in times of trouble. Um, God is in all places and knows all things. This is om- omnipresence and uh, omniscience. Um, he hears your prayers, answers your prayers. Um, you know, I, I love uh, what St. John Chrysostom says about why your prayers might not be answered. <laughs> and he says, well, maybe maybe it's just not time. Maybe you've got to wait a little bit longer. Maybe it's because to answer your prayers right now would be bad for you. And maybe you're asking in the wrong way. Maybe you're asking selfishly. Um, but God always hears prayers. And I, and I would even say this, always acts upon our prayers. Even if it's to not do the thing we're asking for, that's an action. Should we move on to hallowed be high name? Okay, so, so the, the Lord's Prayer is divided up into petitions, and we often don't think about them as petitions, but that's what they're traditionally called. Um, we're not exactly asking God for something in every place, um, but it is divided up into these petitions. Uh, you may remember from the earlier section that um, the Lord's Prayer is both a, a practice and pattern for prayer. Um, I love those words because... Uh, when I was a little kid, my mom would occasionally make clothes for us, for us boys in particular. My sister always got new clothes. But for the boys, she'd always like make clothes. And they were awful. They were just awful. Uh, hated wearing them, felt really sheepish wearing them. Other kids were wearing, you know, I think they called it, you know, those shirts that would change color, hyper-color shirts, and I was walking around in a, in a shirt that my mom made. Um, and, but what, what would she do when she'd make clothes? Very first Very first step go buy the pattern, and you cut out the pattern, and you pin the pattern to the fabric, and you cut out the fabric, right? And then you carefully fold the, the pattern up, and you put it away. Why? So that later you can make the same thing again. So the Lord's Prayer shows a pattern. We, 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 uh, we submit to the pattern to learn to pray, yes? Over time, really talented seamstresses, what do they do? They don't need a pattern, right? They sit down there at the sewing machine, they start cutting, and it just comes out perfectly every time. Um, I love going to um, African markets. When I go to Africa, I'll see, you know, these women um, will work at these foot action singer sewing machines and they will pump out all kinds of stuff all day long. Uh, Women can come into the market and say, I need a dress, I need a skirt, I need this, I need that. And they'll say, come back tomorrow and you'll have it. And they make it exactly to fit without taking any measurements. Why? How do they do it? I guarantee you every one of them started with a pattern. And when they make a dress, they think about that pattern in their mind. They've internalized the pattern. Do you see what goes on? It's the same is true with the Lord's Prayer. We internalize the pattern. That's why you can never escape praying the Lord's Prayer. The pr- Lord's Prayer is at the absolute center of the church's prayer life, okay? But it still serves as a pattern. You'll never grow out of it. Because no matter how much you try, it will always become internalized. I'm going off book a little bit. But what about practice? We mean it in the same way that uh, lawyers have a practice or doctors have a practice. If you've ever known a really good doctor that can kind of be annoying, nurses can be the same way, uh, you'll go out to dinner with them and they'll meet somebody and they'll look at their fingers. A good doctor will do this, look at fingers. They say, um, have you been to see a doctor lately? And the person will say, what are you talking about? I'm fine, everything's fine. Uh, no, it's not fine. You have clubbing in your right hand you have heart disease. And they'll go to the doctor, and they'll get checked out, and the doctor will say, yeah, you had a, you know, widow-maker occlusion in your right, in your right, in your right carotid artery. You were near death, And, And they felt fine, everything was going fine, but they had this, you know, slight clubbing in their fingers, and a doctor can see it. Doctors, what do they do? Every time they meet somebody, without even thinking about it, what do they do? They go through the procedures that they've been practicing for a long, long time. They do it without even thinking. You see what's going on? Every time a doctor goes up to a hospital bed, they go through the same procedure every darn time, and it lends them to getting to the right diagnosis. Um, So this is an amazing thing that people can do. When we practice prayer, according to the Lord's Prayer, what happens? you start to get actually really good at it. And the Lord's Prayer actually shows us this practice, right? teaches us the practice. Okay. Now on to hallowed. We're just going to do the first the first couple of questions here. What is the first petition? The first petition is hallowed be thy name. What is God's name? God's name reveals who he is, his nature, his character, his power and his purposes. The name God reveals to Moses is I am who I am or simply I am. This name means that he alone is truly God. He is the source of his own being. He is holy and just and he cannot be defined by his creatures. I love this. He is holy and just and cannot be defined by his creatures, and yet here we are defining. <laughs> but, but let me say this. Um, when Moses uh, sees this burning, fiery bush, um, and he asks, who shall I say sent me? You know, you're talking about sending me to Egypt, talk, sending me to Pharaoh, I'm going to speak to Pharaoh, and all this. I'm not very good at speaking, but you know, just, a, just as a question that may sort out, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them basically this, I am sent you. Okay. Um, I am that I am. Um, And in fact, this is what God is called, this four-letter word in Hebrew. When you pick up your Bible and you read in the Old Testament, um, you'll see the Lord in all capital letters. That's actually how this Hebrew word, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, is translated in every case. Um, they say "Lord" because what the Hebrew scribes would do is they would they would take this word and they'd write it down, but they wouldn't say it, and then they put in the vowel markings for the for the Hebrew word "Adonai" above it, working backwards. Right? Um, and so instead of saying "Yod he Vav Hey," they say "Adonai." Right? Um, even when the term "God" comes up, they say "Hashem" um, uh, uh, um, today. Um, the name so it's this uh this very important thing in, in Hebrew understanding is that you should never say God's name because lest you take it in vain because it's a holy name um, his name in this sense reveals who he is you know he's not just I am loving no he I am um, not just I am just that's I am uh, his nature, his character, his power, and his purposes. Um, when we, and I will, we'll just wrap this up here, when we hallow the name of God in prayer, which we do every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, which means we're, we're saying your name is holy, and it's actually it's actually kind of a command, right, uh, to say, uh, or it's a evocative it's a sense, right? Make your name holy, essentially what it means. Um, we're calling upon God uh, to, to reveal himself as holy, to reveal himself as the God of all. Um, and so that's, that's what we do. And we pray this uh, to a loving father, um, which those two are not separate, right? They're not separate categories. They're the same category. Um, okay. Well, we'll pick up next week um, with uh, the rest of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, by the way, I'll say this to all of you, um, all of you who've been in this class since about September, you are invited to think about with me uh, the potential of being confirmed when the bishop visits on April 19th. If you'd like to schedule time to do that, see we can set that up with you, um, and I'll be happy to meet with you um, I think it's going to be a, a bit smaller confirmation class this year. That's okay by me. Uh, but it is something which is extended to you and possible for you. And so if that's something you're interested in, please do let me know. I'll be happy to meet with you. We'll begin later. Thank you.